Well, I want to say uh, it is a delight to be here at Hespler Baptist Church at Heritage uh, College and Seminary. Uh, Linda and I love worshiping with you when I'm not on the road, and we so appreciate your pastoral team. Um, I know a number of them really closely and uh, welcome them uh, on campus, and they welcome us when we come here. So it's a delight to get to be with you in a beautiful setting. And I guess officially I should say on behalf of the school, we welcome uh, all of you each Sunday when you're able to come and be part of this uh, beautiful venue. It's really a delight to have you on our campus. Uh, in just a couple of weeks, we will be welcoming a whole host of students. On Labor Day, uh, men and women move into the dormitories uh, for the the college, and then we have a couple days of orientation, and then we actually launch into classes uh, the Thursday after Labor Day is the first day of courses. And I just wanted to say to you that if if you are looking to take some excellent training that would ground you in the Bible and grow you up for your faith wherever God has you, it's not too late. Uh, you could still be part of things, both on the college and on the seminary level. Uh, you could take some courses. And you guys are right in the backyard. You don't have a big commute, so you could jump in. Uh, we, we not only have courses for credit, which you could take a degree or a diploma pro program, but we also offer uh, courses that can just be audited, which just means you don't actually officially enroll in a program. You just benefit from the teaching that ha takes place in that class. So if you'd like to know about that, I was thinking who to ask you to, uh, who I should point you towards. And there's a host of people from Heritage here uh, that you can talk to. Your pastors, I see Chuck's here and DJ's often here and, and uh, Roseanne and Jake are here. Linda's here. Linda actually leads a course this fall, a couple day course on, on writing. Bible curriculum. And ladies, if you'd like to know more about that, about how you can be involved in learning to write Bible curriculum, talk to her afterwards. So we'd be happy to talk to you. One last little uh, invitation. We've got a whole, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 or 15 Muskoka chairs that need to be assembled. And some of you say, well, I'm not so good at taking classes, but I'm pretty good with a screwdriver and I'm pretty good at putting things together. We could use some help from a couple of folks who are just willing to assemble these, uh, these nice, beautiful Muskoka chairs that are going to be outside. We're trying to give students more venues outside. If you can do that, talk to me or Chuck Schoenmaker or DJ, any of us would point you in that direction, okay? Well, it's my joy today to get to uh, enter in and be part of the uh, preaching series, and I decided to kind of link into the Genesis series. If you've been with Hespeler Baptist over the last months, you know that we are journeying through the book of Genesis, and our studies in Genesis right now have us spending time with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, we're in the section of Genesis that talks a lot about them. And as you've already seen, Abraham and Sarah have much to teach us about the life of faith. In fact, Abraham is often held up as a model of somebody who had faith in God. Now, you know their faith was not perfect. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Caleb spoke to us about how Abraham and Sarah stumbled in their faith in the whole episode with Hagar and Ishmael. So their faith was not perfect, but it was genuine and it was commendable. And one of the ways that they really shone in their faith, one of the ways that they are pointed out to us to be like examples of faith is the way they lived as sojourners. They spent much of their life living as sojourners. Sojourners. Now, that's not a word we use a great deal. Uh, the, the dictionary defines sojourner as somebody who is a temporary resident 
in a foreign country. So somebody who lives at least for a time in a land that's not their birth land. It's not their first homeland. And that's what Abraham and Sarah did. They live much of their adult life as sojourners, living as temporary residents in a foreign land. Now, some of us here today can relate to Abraham and Sarah, at least a little bit, when it comes to being sojourners. We know what it's like to uh, live in Canada, but not have it be our homeland, in, its, in the sense of it's not the place where we were born. Linda and I fall into that category. Back in 1998, we immigrated uh, into Canada from California. So I like to tell people, we've been in Canada now 23 winters. That's kind of how I mark it, right? Coming from California, a little different winters here than there. And even though we've become citizens, we're dual citizens now, or as I like to say, we're North Americans. Um, even though we're dual citizens, I really can't fully sing the national anthem the way some of you sing it, especially on the line that says, Oh, Canada, my home and native land, right? It's my adopted land, but it's not my native land. And there's probably others of you here that have that same scenario. In fact, how many of you here were born outside of Canada? You live in Canada now, but you weren't born here. How many of you that's... So there's some of us here that live here now, but we weren't born here then. And you know a little bit what it's like to feel like a sojourner. But here's the thing. Most of you didn't raise your hands because you were born here. And you live here. But did you know this? That the Bible says if you're a Christian, you're a sojourner. Even if you were born in Canada and you still live in Canada, the Bible says you are a sojourner. You are living in a land that is not your true homeland. And that's where Abraham and Sarah can help us out. Because Abraham and Sarah have a lot to teach us on how do you live as a sojourner? How do you do that well? They did it well. You see, Abraham and Sarah are for us a model of living as sojourners. They give us an example to follow, but get, get this, they go beyond that. They're not only a model to follow, they're motivators to follow. They give us motivation to live like sojourners in Canada. This morning, I want to take you to a passage that highlights Abraham and Sarah's faith as sojourners. I'm calling the message today, Sojourner Faith. What does it look like to live as a sojourner? And here's what I'm praying. Here's what I've been praying for you, for me. That today, whether Canada is your home and native land, or whether, like us, it's your adopted land, wherever you are in that, you would come to see and you would come to embrace a life as a sojourner in Canada as part of your life of faith. That's what I'm praying today. And we're going to see a passage that will help us do that. It's found in the New Testament book of Hebrews. So would you join me in Hebrews chapter 11? I want to talk to you about living with sojourner faith. Living with sojourner faith. What it looks like and why it matters so much. Why it's important. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we'll be today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at our text. Father, I thank you for a beautiful Sunday morning where we have been able to gather together and sing your praises. And we've entered into a prayer that was prayed on our behalf for your world that is broken and yet beautiful. And now, Lord, we open your word, and we have another request of you. Would you, by your Spirit, help us to get it? 
Would you help us to understand it, not just cognitively, but would you help us to understand it viscerally, spiritually? Would you help us to receive what you want to say in a way that shapes us and changes us for our life on earth? I pray you would help me to stay tethered to the text, and I pray you would help us to be responsive to it. And I ask this so that we may live as sojourners who honor you. In Christ's name, amen. So Hebrews chapter 11 is probably one of the more famous chapters in the New Testament. And uh, in fact, Hebrews chapter 11 is sometimes called the Bible's Hall of Fame or Hall of Faith, right? If you're a baseball fan, you know that down in Cooperstown, New York, not that far from us, is the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's quite an exciting museum if you like baseball. And uh, there's one part of the museum where you walk in and it's this giant hall. And it's the Hall of Heroes. And on the walls of this hall, there are these bronze plaques for all the baseball players who've been inducted into the Hall of Fame. They're the heroes of baseball. Starting all the way back at the beginning with Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth. And then going all the way through the, the decades with Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. And this September, they'll have the newest inductees. They'll get their own bronze plaque up there. That'll be Derek Jeter and uh, Larry Walker, good Canadian boy, right? So there's all these heroes, and you walk up and you look at their plaques, and they got their name and a little brief bio of what they did when they were players. It's quite an amazing place. Hebrews 11 is a bit like that. As you walk through Hebrews 11, you get brief bios and brief glimpses of men and women who lived in the Old Testament days who were exemplarily for their faith. They weren't perfect in their faith, but they were commended by their faith. And Abraham and Sarah get a lot of airtime in Hebrews 11. Abraham is introduced to us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Look at it with me. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then Sarah is introduced to us in verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, there were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now, in verses 13 through 16, it talks about them living as sojourners. These will be the verses we focus on today, verses 13 to 16. Look at verse 13. It said, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city." 
In those verses, I want to highlight for you today three lessons about sojourner faith. Three things you and I need to learn about what sojourner faith is and why it matters. The first lesson comes out of verse 13. I put it this way. The first thing we're going to see in this passage is that sojourner faith, sojourner faith admits to being a foreigner. One of the marks of someone with sojourner faith is that they admit, they acknowledge, they accept the fact that they are a foreigner. They're a stranger. They're in exile. Sojourner faith admits to being a foreigner. See, that was true of Abraham and Sarah. Did you see that in verse 13? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and here it is, and having acknowledged or confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham and Sarah acknowledged. They admitted. They confessed. They said, you know who we are? We're strangers. We're exiles. We're sojourners. Sojourner faith admits to being a foreigner. Now, if you've been tracking with Hespeler Baptist on Sunday mornings when we covered Genesis chapter 12, you know why they felt like strangers and exiles. You might recall back in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord calls Abram and Sarai to leave their homeland and go to a place that he was going to show them, a new land. In fact, let me read it for you. Genesis 12 verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, from your land, and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So Abraham goes out not knowing where he's headed, but he knows that he's a foreigner wherever he goes. And eventually makes his way 5,500 kilometers away. So that's a long ways. He ends up in the land of Canaan which is modern-day Israel. He starts in the Ur of Chaldees, which is Iraq, and he moves all the way across towards the Mediterranean and lands in Canaan. And when he gets to Canaan, the Lord says to him, this is it. This is the land I'm going to give you. Chapter 12, verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. So the Lord promises Abraham to your descendants. He didn't have any descendants at that moment. But he said, to your descendants, I'm going to give you this land. This will be your homeland. But our text back in Hebrews 11 says that when Abraham died, he still had not received that promise. It still hadn't come true yet. Still didn't have the land. Did you see that? Verse 13 of our passage, Hebrews 11. These all, that's including Abram, Sarah, and, and their children, Isaac and Jacob, their grandson, it says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So God said, I'm going to give you this land to your descendants. By the time Abraham died, it still hadn't happened yet. But he died in faith. He still believed it was going to happen. And all the time that he lived, he said, this land is going to be given to me, my God, but right now I'm a foreigner. In fact, verse 13 says that, right? He confessed, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Now, that's the first mark of sojourner faith. You admit that you're a foreigner. You acknowledge that. You make peace with that. You come to go, you know, you know what? I'm not home yet. Now, Abraham and Sarah did that. Now, I don't mean that when they lived in Canaan, they never talked to anyone and they tried to be odd wads and they just tried to stay to themselves. I don't mean that. From what we read, they actually had some friendships and alliances and connections with the people around them. They were friendly to the other people, but they never fit in completely with the other people. 
I mean, they worshipped a different God than the people around them, right? They had different values than the people around them. They had a different vision for raising their family than the people around them. They always knew, I, I don't really fit here. I'm a stranger. I'm an alien. That's what verse 13 said. They acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens. Now, so I started off this morning by asking you, how many of you were born here, but now you live here? And that was some of us. Some of you here today know a little bit of what it feels like to be a stranger and an alien. You've lived for a time in your life in a place that wasn't your homeland. Some of you have lived outside of Canada, and now you're back. Others, you live in Canada, but it's not where you were born. You know what it feels like to be a foreigner. When I was in university, I spent a summer in Tokyo, Japan. Spent about uh, 10 weeks there, and I was teaching English as a second language, ESL, as a summer missionary. And I lived with two Japanese businessmen. One spoke English, one didn't. We just spent a lot of time bowing and nodding and trying to smile at each other. But the other guy could talk to me a bit. And I spent the whole week largely on my own. I would teach classes with Japanese. And then I would go, and everywhere I went, I knew I was a foreigner. In fact, when I would walk through the donchi, the apartments where I lived, or when I got on the train, the little children, the little children would point up to me and they would, I would hear them say, gaijin, gaijin. Gaijin is the Japanese word that means foreigner, foreigner. I knew I was a foreigner. I mean, I was head and shoulders taller than about anyone else. My skin was pasty white. I didn't really blend in that way. And my feet, I wear size 10 and a half, which is kind of, you know, normal in our place. That was way bigger than most other people. I remember one time I went with my students to go bowling. So we got up to the counter and the person said, what size shoe do you need? And they all said their shoe. And then you looked at me, I said, 10 and a half. And, it, and she, her eyes just looked big like, I don't know if they make shoes that big. She, she went in the back room and eventually came out with a pair of 10 and a half. I think she felt she had just met Bigfoot. You know, there he was. He's bowling in our... So I put on my shoes and everywhere I went, I was reminded I was a foreigner. Now, people were very friendly and I made friends. It was a great summer, but I knew I, never, I didn't really fit in. The Bible says, if you're a Christian, please hear this. The Bible says, if you are a Christian, you are a guy gene on earth. You're a guy gene. You're a foreigner. That's what the Bible says. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter writes and says, I appeal to you as sojourners and exiles. It's not just Abraham and Sarah. It's you if you're a Christian. You're a foreigner on earth. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to have friends around you. You're still going to be a good neighbor. You're going to know people on your campus at school. You'll know people in the workplace, and you'll, you'll relate to them, and you'll be kind, and they'll be kind, and you'll, know, you'll have friends. But get this, you will never fully fit. You will never fully fit in. You worship a different God than most people around you. You have different values than most people around you. You have a different vision for how you're going to raise your family than most people around you. You're friendly, but you won't totally fit. At least you shouldn't. So let me ask you this question. If the first mark of sojourner faith is that it admits to being a foreigner, can I ask you a question? Take this one personally. Ask yourself this question. Is that how I see myself? Like, do you see yourself as a gaijin on earth? Do you see yourself as a foreigner, as a sojourner? Do you see yourself that way? Do you say, yeah, you know, I'm friendly with a lot of people, but I don't fully fit. 
Is that how you see yourself? And if you're saying to me, well, actually, that's not how I see myself. I actually fit pretty well around here. I mean, I blend in like everybody else. Nobody would think I'm different than anyone else. If that's true, I would say to you, that's not a good sign. Because sojourner faith admits to being a foreigner. That's the first mark of sojourner faith. But there's a second mark that comes out in verses 14, 15, and 16. You see, even though we're foreigners on earth, it doesn't mean we don't want to go home. It doesn't mean we don't long for a homeland. Verses 14 to 16 teach us a second thing about sojourner faith. First thing, it admits to being a foreigner. Here's the second thing. Sojourner faith anticipates a better homeland. But it, it admits I'm a foreigner here, but I, it anticipates a better homeland. It looks forward to. It longs for a better country. That's what Abram and Sarah did. Look at it at verses 14, 15, 16. You'll see it. Sojourner faith anticipates a better homeland. Look at verse 14. For people who speak thus, that goes back to verse 13 where they say we're strangers and exiles. People who say that, people who say, you know what, I'm a stranger and exile on earth. People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. So Abraham and Sarah did want a homeland. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Like if the homeland they wanted was the home country of Ur of the Chaldees, they could have packed up and just gone home. But that's not the homeland they were seeking. In fact, verse 16 makes it clear. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Now, that last little phrase there, a heavenly one, that one surprises me when I read it. Because I thought, well, wait, 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 wait. I didn't think Abraham were look and Sarah were looking for a heavenly country. They just wanted the land of Canaan that God promised them. Remember when he went to Canaan, the Lord said, Genesis 12, 7, to your descendants, I'm giving this land. So I would think that what Abraham desired was this land, Canaan, Israel. That's what he wanted, Right. Well, our text says, he actually set his sights higher than that. Our text says in verse 16, he desired a better country that is a heavenly one. He wanted a country that was better than the Ur of the Chaldees, better than the place he was born. He also wanted a country better than Canaan, the place he was promised. He was looking forward to a heavenly country. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that Abraham had a lousy life on earth. He didn't. He lived as a foreigner, but if you read the book of Genesis, he actually was pretty well off. Genesis 13 tells us he was a very rich man. God allowed him to acquire a great deal of riches. It said he had large herds and much gold. Chapter 14 says he had over 300 trained servants. That's a pretty big estate if you've got 300 people that are serving you. So he had a pretty good life on earth, but he wanted more. He looked above that, he looked beyond that, and he wanted a better country, a heavenly one. He wanted a country that could not be contained on earth. You see, one of the marks of sojourner faith is that it anticipates, it looks forward to 
a better country. That's what Abraham and Sarah did. The text says that over and over. Go back to verse 10. You'll see it. It says, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's looking forward to that. Verse 13, he died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. With the eyes of faith, he looked down and said, there's a better country coming. There's a better country coming. And he desired it. Verse 16, a better country that is a heavenly one. Now, if I could be honest with you, my friends, I know my own heart, and I've been a pastor long enough to know the hearts of others. And I would say that for many of us, maybe even most of us, we don't live like Abraham did. We really don't live with this anticipation of a better country, a heavenly one. We don't. Most of us are just trying to carve out a little piece of heaven where we live on earth. Most of us are just trying to make it better where we are now. Most of us have our time, our energy, our focus, and our hearts tethered to earth. And our days and our thoughts and our hopes are all consumed, making life where we are right now livable and even maybe enjoyable. We spend our days with all the stuff that fills them. We've got brakes to get on the car. We've got braces to get on the kids. We've got problems at work. We got a vacation that we're hoping to take whenever they open up the border and we can go somewhere. We've got hopes and dreams, and most of them, if we're honest, are very much centered on where we live right now, right here. And yet the Bible consistently calls us to live here fully, yes, but to never live here in the way that stops us from looking ahead and looking up. The Bible's really clear on that. Like there are verse after verse after verse after verse that points us up, that says, don't let your horizon only be earthly. Colossians 3.1 says, if therefore you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul writes this, So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. Did you know that every single one of us is at least a dual citizen here? Right? You got your Canadian passport? Great. But Paul says, you know where your real passport is? Your, if you're Christian, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we wait for a Savior. We wait. We look for Him to come and take us home. Because He will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. You see, the Bible says it over and over. This is not a minor theme in Scripture, my friends. This is a major motif, and Abraham and Sarah got it, and they got it right. And if I were honest about my own soul, and if I were honest about my observations, I'd say many of us in Canada, we don't get that. Life is actually pretty good for us here. Oh, there's a pandemic. Today we prayed about problems around the world, but they're half a world away. We're not running from our life from the Taliban today. We're not digging out of the rubble like the folks are in Haiti. We're sitting in a sunny, beautiful place in Canada. It's not so bad here. And many of us, many of us live like, you know what? This is where life is. 
And the Bible says to us, wait, 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 wait. That is a limited vision. You are a sojourner. Like you're a temporary resident here. And you've got a better homeland. Anticipate that. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. I get that. I get what you're saying, but I don't know how to live that out. Well, let me tell you the story about a man who figured it out and who teaches us some things about how you and I can do this. His name is Richard Baxter. He was a Puritan pastor, lived in the 17th century, a long time ago. Here's his story. When he was a young man, actually a young man in ministry, he was diagnosed by the physicians of his day as having a terminal illness. So they told him, look, we got nothing we can do for you. Prepare to die. That's pretty much what they told him. So what Richard Baxter did, instead of just pouting or curling up, he decided to get ready for heaven. So what he would do is every day he began to open the Bible to passages that talked about his heavenly homeland, and he would, he would ponder them. He'd think about them. Consciously, he would think about them for a while, and then he would preach a message to his own soul about them. Like he couldn't preach right now in his church, so he preached to himself. He had a congregation of one. And he preached to himself about what he read. Like, come on, my soul, think about that. Hang on to that. And then he would pray about what he preached. He'd say, Lord, make this a reality. And then he wrote down what he learned. He started taking notes. And this went on for months. And to the surprise of the doctors, he got better. In fact, he lived to be an older man. He lived into his 70s. But you know what he said? All that thinking about heaven stabilized my soul. It focused my energies. It changed my heart. So even when he got better, he continued the practice of carving out time every day to let his mind run upward and think about the homeland that was coming. In fact, he tried to carve out 30 minutes a day to think about the better homeland. He would take a piece of scripture, ponder it, preach it to himself, and then he would pray. Now, I read that some years ago, and I thought, man, I could use that help. So I decided to try that. And 30 minutes a day seemed a bit daunting for me at that time, so I tried to go for seven minutes. I called it seven for heaven. And I would try to take seven minutes. Didn't do it every day. Stumbled a lot of days. But I would try to take, for a season, I tried to take seven minutes. And I would take a passage of Scripture, ponder it, preach it to my soul, and pray about it. And I found that when I did that, which wasn't nearly as frequently as I would like to say I, I, I accomplished it. When I did that, guess what it did? It lifted my eyes. It lifted my heart. It tilted me upward. It reminded me I'm a sojourner, and I got a better country coming. Richard Baxter, at the end of his life, began commending this practice to others. He went around. In fact, he, oh, he took his meditations that he wrote down, and they became his first book. It's called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. You can still pick it up on Kindle if you want to read what he came up with during those years. But he would go to Christians and say, hey, why don't you try this? Take some time. Take a passage of Scripture for a few minutes. Ponder about it. Preach it to your soul. Baxter said this. He, this is a great line. He said, hearing one, two, or three sermons from others a week is probably sufficient, but you should get one, two, or three sermons a day from yourself. Like he said, preach to yourself over and over. So take a passage of Scripture, ponder it, preach it, and then pray. Let me show you how that would work. Say, that, say you took the passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul writes this. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So you would read that, and then you just think about it. Okay, so we fix our eyes. What does it mean to fix your eyes? 
That means like you focus your intention, right? You focus your gaze. When you fix your eyes on something, you're looking intently. Paul says, I fix my eyes on things I can't see. Now that's interesting. How do you fix your eyes on things you can't see? Well, you see them by faith. You read the scriptures. So you think of that, you ponder it, and then you preach it to yourself. You sit yourself up and you say, come on, buddy. I'd say to myself, come on, Rick. You're focusing way too much on all the stuff that you can see. It's temporary. You know that house that you're so worried about? It's temporary. You know that car that gives you so much trouble? It's temporary. All these things that you see, they're temporary. The things you can't yet see, but you see by faith, those are eternal. And you preach a little sermon to your soul. You should be the best preacher you ever hear because you know your own heart and you can preach right to it. And then you pray about it. Lord, would you help me today? You know my tendency. I tend to just focus on the stuff that's right in front of me. Would you lift my gaze? Would you help me focus on what I cannot yet see? But I believe it's coming. Jesus is coming back. I've got a better homeland. Help me stabilize me. And you, and you pray what you've just preached. You ponder, preach, and pray. Now, some of you hear that and you say, well, Wait a second. If you do that, if, if you start doing, if I started doing that, couldn't you kind of get like so heavenly minded you're no earthly good? Have you ever heard that saying? He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. And I'd say back to you, I've never met anyone like that. But I've met a whole bunch of people that are so earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. In fact, C.S. Lewis made a great insight about the people who are heavenly minded. He said, people who are most heavenly minded do the most earthly good. Listen to what Lewis says. I'm quoting C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. He said, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just the ones who thought most about the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Now catch this. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. See what he's saying? He's saying, if you look at William Wilberforce and John Newton and the people who got rid of slavery, they did a lot in this world. You know why? Because they understood that there's a better world coming and they were living for that world. If you do this, it's not going to make you disengage. It's not going to make you pull away from people. It actually will motivate you to live your life now for then. Martin Luther used to say this, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. And when you live for that day, you'll live differently this day. So Baxter said, I started thinking about that day. And it shaped how I live this day. My hope is that we would be people who are sojourners, who anticipate a better country, and we do that so much. We're so heavenly minded that we actually become much more earthly good. So what are the two marks that we've seen about having a sojourner faith? You admit that you're a foreigner. You anticipate a better country. Let me close by raising one last thought. Someone could hear all this and go, okay, I get this. I get this. And maybe, maybe for the uh, spiritual Babe Ruths and Willie Mays and Derek Jeters of the Christian world, maybe they can do this. 
but why does it matter if I do it? I'm just a little old Christian. I'm not some hero. I'm not going to make it in the Bible. They're not going to write books about me. Why does it matter that I live this way? I'm glad Paul lived this way. I'm glad Abraham did. But why should I try to live this way? Why should I adopt the mentality of a sojourner and anticipate a better homeland? If you ask that question, the writer of Hebrew answers it at the end of verse 16. Look back one last time in our passage. In verse 16, we're going to learn a third lesson about sojourner faith. It says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Now catch what comes next. Therefore, therefore, in, because of this, because they desire a better country, a heavenly one, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Hey, here's the third thing about sojourner faith that tells you why you should do this. I'd put it this way. Sojourner faith is not an embarrassment to God. Sojourner faith. God's not ashamed to be called their God. People who live this way, God's not ashamed to be linked to them. Sojourner faith is not an embarrassment to God. When it says in verse 16, God is not ashamed to be called their God, that implies that God could be ashamed to be called the God of some people. Could be a bit embarrassing for God to be associated with some people like me or you. It could be. But he's not ashamed of those who have sojourner faith. He's not embarrassed to call them his own. Now you say, well, how does that, what are you saying here? I think if you look at the, the passage, you understand what's going on. Look at it one more time. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for, it's the reason, he has prepared for them a city. I think it goes like this. God has prepared a heavenly homeland for his children. If, you're a, if you belong to Jesus, you got a heavenly homeland. He's prepared for you a city. And when you live like you believe that promise, when you live like that's the better homeland, when you really live that way, God's not ashamed to be linked to you. But if you live like you don't believe that promise, if you live like that promise doesn't matter or won't happen, it's kind of embarrassing for God, if we could put it that way. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Say you're a parent. Mom and dad, you got two kids, a boy that's eight and a little girl that's six. And one day, dad, you come down and you sit down with your two kids, the boy eight, the girl six, and you say, hey, kids, I got some great news for you. We are actually going to move. We, we've been renting this apartment for a long time, but we're going to move into our own house. Mommy and daddy have just signed an agreement. We're going to move into a new house, and it's an amazing place. You haven't seen it yet. But when you see it, you're going to be amazed. It's a wonderful place. It's got a big yard, and there's places that you can, you can ride your bikes. There's a swing set already there. And get this, you're each going to have your own room, and we're going to paint it the color that you most want it. It's going to be an amazing place. So you tell your kids this. But then you notice that in the weeks after that, your boy and your girl live like they don't really think that's going to happen. In fact, they start telling their friends, I don't want to go to a new house. I like this place. And then they start acting like they don't really think it's going to happen. And you as a parent are going, you know, I guess my own kids don't even believe me. That's a bit embarrassing, right? My own kids don't believe me. But if your little girl starts going to her friends and going, hey, guess what? My mommy said, my daddy said, we're moving to a new house. And it's a better place. And I can hardly wait you overhear that and you go, that's my girl. I think when God saw Abraham and Sarah 
living as foreigners and anticipating a better land, God said, that's my boy. That's my girl. I'm not ashamed to be associated with them. Wouldn't it be great to live the kind of life and to have the kind of faith that when God looks at you, says, that's my boy. That's my girl. They believe me. They take me on my word. On the converse side, wouldn't it be tragic to go through this life not believing God, not living for what he says is coming, and having God say, well, they're my child, but I don't know, they just don't believe me. They don't live like this is really going to happen. I don't want to be that person. Why am I motivated to have sojourner faith? I don't want to be an embarrassment to God. I'd like to be a joy to his heart. So if you want to live with sojourner faith, here's, here it is in a nutshell. You have to admit you're a foreigner on earth and anticipate you got something better coming. You got a better homeland. And when you do that, when you live that way, it changes the way you live. Oh, you still got to get brakes for the car and braces for the kids. You still have assignments that are due at school. You still have work projects you got to get done. You still may look forward to a vacation that you're hoping to take someday. You still will do those things, but above and beyond them, you're saying, you know, but my sights are set above those. Like my heart is not captured by all this. I'm looking for more. I'm looking for a better. I'm anticipating. And God is not ashamed to be linked to those people. You know, everything I've said today is predicated on the fact that you actually will be headed for heaven, right? I've been, I've been talking like you got a heavenly home. But you probably know this, not everybody's headed for heaven. Most people that I run into, most people in my world, even my friends and colleagues out in community, they all think they're headed for heaven. They're nice people, they think. I talked to a friend recently who says, I'm not headed for heaven, I've done too many bad things. So there are people who think they're going to go to heaven, but they're thinking, they're thinking wrong. Because the Bible says it's not an automatic that you get to go to heaven. You know that, right? It's not automatic. It's not just because you're a good person, you come to church, you put some money in the plate. It's not, none of those things get you into heaven. The way you know you have a homeland in heaven is if you listen to Jesus who said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then when Thomas says, how do we get there? You hear Jesus say these words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father's house but through me. There's only one way, there's only one ticket into heaven, and that's Jesus. He's the one who died for all the sins that you and I have committed. He's the one who defeated death and promises life. And it's only, get this, it's only when you link your life to Jesus, when you surrender yourself to him and you receive his forgiveness and his new life, then he says to you, you're welcome into my family and I got a great homeland prepared for you. So the most basic thing I want to say to you today, if you've never done that, if you've never given yourself to Christ and received his gift of life, you've never repented of your sin and believed in him as your one way to heaven, the only way to heaven, if you've never done that, that's where you need to start. And you can do that today. You can just, in the quietness of this moment, call up and say, God, I need that. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. He's my one hope for heaven. He's my one hope for life on earth. And you put your faith in him. And when you do that, the Bible says... He's got a homeland for you. 
And then, and then, you start living as a sojourner. And for the rest of your life, till Jesus comes back or calls you home in death, you're like Abraham and Sarah. You admit you're a foreigner. You anticipate a better country. And God is not ashamed to be called your God. Can we pray? I'm going to just give you a moment. Uh, we're going to sing one last song. Mark's going to come and lead us. But could you just take a moment silently to process a bit of this? Maybe the Lord is whispering some things to you that you need to hear. Don't push them away. Maybe he's saying to you, you're not living like a stranger. You're not living like a foreigner. You're living like this world is all you get. Maybe he's reminding you to lift your eyes, tilt your heart upwards. Maybe you need to do some seven for heaven. Maybe you need to focus your gaze. Why don't you, whatever it is, talk to him privately and then I'll pray for us publicly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are laid open before you. you. You know the truth about us, though at times we don't even know the truth about ourselves or we try to hide it from others. You know, you know the reality. Nobody cons you. Nobody scams you. Nobody fools you. And yet, Lord, you are also the one, though you know us the most, you love us the best. And you want us to be able to experience all you have for us on earth, but to never let our hearts be tethered just to the earth, to long for that better land, that homeland where righteousness dwells, where there will be no sin and sickness, no earthquakes, no death, no terrorists, no sin in our own hearts, no pride, no doubt, no anger, no lust. All those things will be gone. So help us to live now in light of then. And may we, in a sense, please your heart rather than embarrass you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.